Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Planning for Retirement podcast, where we help educate you on how retirement works. This is episode 29. Is the 60-40 portfolio dead for retirement planning? For those of you that don't know me, I'm Kevin Lau. I'm your host. I've been a financial planner for 15 years and have a passion for education, which is what this podcast is all about. Our mission is to educate you to increase clarity and confidence to achieve financial security. I'm also the owner of Imagine Financial Security, which is an independent financial planning and investment management firm based in Florida. However, this information is for educational purposes only and should not be used as investment, legal, or tax advice. We're not your financial planner, unless of course we are your financial planner, but we're still speaking in generalities here, so consider your own unique circumstances before taking any action. I hope you enjoy today's episode. All right, the 60-40 portfolio. First of all, what is the 60-40 portfolio? It is the corresponding percentage of stocks and bonds in one's overall investment portfolio. So in this case, we're talking about 60% being in stocks and 40% being in bonds. The 60-40 portfolio has by far been the most popular investment allocation for not only retirees, but also endowments and foundations. Okay, so what do these two entities have in common? Because it provides for some upside growth potential to stave off inflation relative to what's going on in 2022 and 2023 coupled with solid downside protection and steady cash flows from the fixed incomes out of the portfolio, okay? Many endowments and foundations need to generate income for their current expenditures, keeping the lights on, new projects, initiatives, paying their staff, okay? Same thing with same thing with a retiree. They need to generate some income now, okay, to, to travel, to uh, live their lifestyle, replace their income from when they were working, okay? But both entities, in addition to income now, they also need to keep pace with inflation and take care of expenditures in five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years down the road. And that's where the 60% in equities comes into play. Well, what's going on now? Well, here's the deal. 2022, stocks were down 19% and bonds were also down 13%. Typically, stocks and bonds move in opposite directions. Let's take a look at the last six times the stock market was down at the close of a calendar year. Okay, let's start with 2000 during the dot-com bubble. In 2000, stocks were down 10.5%, but bonds were up 11%. 2001, stocks were down 11%. The next year, bonds were up 8.4%. In 2002, so we had this three-year losing streak with the dot-com bust. 2002, stocks were down 21%. Bonds were up 8.2%. Let's look at 2008, the Great Recession. Stocks were down 37% that year. Okay, painful year, but bonds were up a little over 5%. Okay, but here, let's look at the last two, though. So those were from 2000 to 2008, 2009. Okay, but look at the last two. 2018, stocks were down only 5% that year. Bonds were also down 0.1%. Look at 2022, however, we just mentioned this. Stocks were down 19% and bonds were down 13%. Well, why did this happen first and foremost? Well, the short answer is the global pandemic. Okay. Typically, what happens after coming out of a recession the economy has time to recover. 
Typically, people are going back to work, and now they're more confident in spending money. They're buying houses. They're buying cars. They're uh, traveling. Okay, And then what happens is later in the cycle, after the economy has had time to recover, then you have some inflationary effects occur. Okay, And interest rates generally start to tick up in the late cycles of an economic boom in order to slow down growth. Okay, Because the more expensive money is, the less people are going to spend. Okay, If you have an interest rate for a car at 1% versus an interest rate for a car that's 6%, there are more cars that are going to be sold with the interest rate with 1%. That's just the facts. But after the 2008 recession, the Great Recession, rates stayed historically low for so long. Okay? You, may, you may have heard the term quantitative easing. Well, that's what, that's what went on for a, more than a decade. Okay? In 2016, interest rates began to creep up a little bit, knowing that, hey, we can't stay at 0% forever. So the Fed began to let interest rates creep up. But then right before the pandemic, we were at a place where we were north of 2% on the Fed funds rate. And then boom, coronavirus happens. So what did governments do? Not just the US government, but governments all across the world. They got a super aggressive with trying to pre prevent the global economy from crashing. Roughly $5 trillion of stimulus pumped into the US economy. Okay, And at the same time, the Feds began to cut rates back to zero. Okay, Well, we know what happened starting in 2022. Powell was very clear about this late 2021. He said, hey, we have an inflationary issue here. Okay, This isn't transitory like we thought it was. Now we're going to aggressively begin raising rates starting in 2022. For those of you that follow me, you know, hopefully, interest rates have an inverse relationship to bond prices. So what does that mean? Let's say you owned a bond that was paying $25 in interest and the value of your bond is $1,000. But then a year later, rates have come up. So now the issuer can offer the same bond with the same duration, so the same maturity date, with the same risk profile. But now they're going to be paying $50 on interest payments on that same $1,000 bond. Well, who in their right mind is going to go and buy your bond for $1,000 paying $25 in interest versus paying another bond, the newer issue? for that same $1,000 with $50 in interest? The answer is they won't, and, and that's how the markets work. So what happens is your bond price will now need to come down in order to accommodate for higher interest rates. That's why bond prices have an inverse relationship to interest rates. That's why many of you owning bond mutual funds or bond ETFs or even individual bonds, you saw a significant drop in the value of your bonds over the last couple of years. Okay, so this has been a concern for investors. And, and this is really the first time in over 40 years that the 60-40 portfolio has shown its flaws. Okay. And what happened is that media, they flocked to the story. You know, they they started really in the mid-2022. And throughout this year, they've been writing, is the 60-40 portfolio dead? So I'm going to unpack this today. I'm going to walk you through what has the 60-40 portfolio done and what has it provided over the last 10, 20, and 30 years. Okay. And then looking into the future, now where we're at this point where it's like, hey, we're going to be higher for longer, right? The Fed funds rate is north of 5%. It doesn't look like it's going to be coming down anytime short term. Okay. Perhaps intermediate term, they could start to lower rates if we go through a recession. Okay. But they're not going to be coming down short term. So 
this higher for longer mantra is going to be trickling into the global economy for a little while now, right? And it has been. Growth is slowing down and it's going to continue to slow down. So now we're at this this different cycle that we've seen over the last 10 to 15 years since the Great Recession. So how do we modernize the 60-40 portfolio in order to align with what's going on in the economy today? So we're going to unpack that. I'm going to give you actually five strategies to put in place or to consider putting in place. Everyone's situation is going to be unique. You may implement one. You may implement all five. You may implement none. Okay. But the, the, the key is I'm going to give you five and you're going to figure out, hey, what is relevant to my situation based on my goals, my risk tolerance, and my financial circumstances. So first of all, most retirees that I work with, they hold about 30% of 70% of their portfolios in interest-sensitive investments, okay? And we just unpacked why that was such a disaster during 2022 is because interest rates went from 0% all the way up north of 5% where we are now very quickly, okay? In about a, in a little over a year, okay? That is a very aggressive rate hike schedule, no, so, nothing like we've ever seen before. So there was nowhere to hide. I mean, you know, you had stocks that were down 20% roughly. You had bonds that were down 13%. And even cash last year over the last year had a negative return because yields on cash were lower than the inflation rate. So in essence, in 2022, we were in a triple bear market, much like the one we saw in 1973. So the question that a lot of people ask is, hey, is this still a viable strategy going forward? Well, like we just talked about, why don't we dive into some of the numbers? Okay, why don't we look back at the last 10 years, the last 20 years, the last 30 years? Because looking over a one-year period or a two-year period, that's not telling the whole story. Okay, the markets go in cycles and things tend to over overperform their historical average. Sometimes that could go on for a period of five or 10 years. And then they could go on and underperform their benchmark over the next five to 10 years. And over 10, 20, 30 years, things tend to even out because markets are efficient. But let's look at the actual performance numbers. And I used a really simple 60-40 portfolio. I just basically said, hey, let's say 40% in a US index. Let's do 20% in an international stock index and then 40% in US bonds. So 60% in equities, 40% fixed income, and somewhat diversified between US stocks, international stocks, and then US bonds. Well, let's start with 2013 to 2022. So this has the, the awful year of 2022 embedded in the, these numbers here. The annualized returns over that 10-year period, 6.13%. And some of you may think like, hey, is that is that even good? Well, you know, I've been looking at this for 15 years. Most of the time what I see for a 60-40 portfolio, the assumption is about 5.5%, maybe 6%. So over 10 years, a 60-40 portfolio did its job quite well. 6.13% annualized return. That's pretty good. How about, let's look at 20 years. 2003 to 2022, annualized returns, 6.92%. Out of those 20 years, 16 years were positive. Pretty good right there. That's about 80%. Oh, and here's another thing. Listen to this. Out of those 16 years that were positive over the last 20 years, seven of those 16 years were more than double what the average rate of return was. So that's 6.92%, double it. Seven years out of those 20 years. What does this tell you? This tells you that you capture the majority of your rates of return in really, really, really good markets. And you can't be sitting on the sideline during those markets. Have an investment strategy and stick to the investment strategy because if you miss out on one or two of those years, 
that you should have been invested a certain way and you weren't, you're going to sacrifice your average return. I promise you that. And Dalbar, they've been doing studies for decades on this thing. What investor performance was versus the actual investments that they own, how they performed. And typically investors, they can lag the actual investments that they own by up to 40%. Well, how is this possible? Market timing. Very simple. They're chasing the news stories. You know, because we are inundated with media, right? I mean, listen, social media, 24-hour news cycle now. I mean, you can turn on any news outlet and they're going to have news going on. And a lot of it comes down to impacting the markets. And people tend to react to what the media is saying. And what I am telling you is don't follow the crowds. I like to use this Warren Buffett quote, be fearful when others are greedy and be greedy when others are fearful. I love it. Okay, Not that we want to be greedy, but the point is this, that Warren Buffett was trying to make is when people are scared, usually a good opportunity for you. It's a good buying opportunity. When people are overly optimistic, be a little bit more cautious. Okay, I'm not saying abandon your strategy, but just understand the cycles of, of how the markets work. Okay, We go through ups and downs in the markets and investors' emotion can get in the way sometimes and fog our behavior. Okay, so keep that number in mind. Seven out of the last 16 years that were positive returns for the 60-40 portfolio were more than double the average return. That means it earned more than roughly 13.8%. Okay, that's that's amazing for a 60-40 portfolio. Okay, we're obviously not feeling good about what's going on today because 60-40 hasn't done so well, which we'll talk about here in a second. All right, what about 30 years? Okay, if, you, if, you, if you're listening to this podcast and you've been retired for 30 years, good on you. Probably none of you are in this boat. Um, but just from perspective, if you retired in 1993 with a 60-40 portfolio and, and 2022, you looked at your average performance, average rate of return, 7.09%. Remember we said the average projected typically I've seen five and a half to 6%. Okay. What is this telling you? We've been outperforming the average expected returns for quite a while. Okay. We're due for a slowdown, which is what's been going on recently. I don't think anyone had a global pandemic in their models, in their Monte Carlo simulations, but that's what happened. And that's where we are today. And we've got to live with it. We've got to figure out a way to adapt to what's going on with the markets today. Okay, But 7.09% average rate of return over the last 30 years, no wonder retirees and endowments and foundations have loved the 60-40 model. Okay? Well, 2022, we just talked about, that was the triple whammy. You know, that was a bear market for stocks, bear market for bonds, and bear market for cash. Okay. It was a painful year. And so if you're kind of sitting there and you're like, gosh, I am frustrated with my accounts. They're, I keep adding money into my portfolio and they're not growing. Um, you know, or I've been retired for a couple of years and I've been drawing my portfolio and the balance has gone down. That's an unsettling situation to be in. Okay. We call the sequence of returns risks retiring at the wrong time. You can't time it perfectly. Sometimes you might retire into a good market. Sometimes you might retire into a bear market. For those that retired in 2022, which by the way, I have some of those clients, they retired into a bear market. So it's it's unnerving. It's unsettling. You are not alone. Okay. So I'm, I'm telling you this because I know this for a fact. I talk to investors every day. I'm on forums every single day. I'm on Facebook groups every day. I talk to friends. I talk to family, how they're feeling about the markets nobody is feeling optimistic about the markets right now, okay? And it's been like that for a little while, 
Okay, consumer sentiment about a year ago, roughly in July of 2022, hit a 50-year low consumer sentiment. Basically, people were the most pessimistic they've been in 50 years in the summer of 2022 when inflation was near 9%. So you're not alone. But what I tell, what I go back to that quote, be fearful when others are greedy and greedy and others are fearful. Right now, people are fearful. So this is not a time to join the herd, Okay. I've seen, trust me, I've seen this so many times where investors, I say, you know what? I'm just going to bail out of the markets. I can get 5% in a high yield savings account. I'm going to just do that for a little while. Okay. I'm going to just do this for a period of time. Well, listen to me right now. Hartford funds did a study on this. Okay. And they wanted to figure out, Hey, what, what does behavior look like? Or what, what do markets do when we're in a bear market? And listen to this over 50% of the best days and the S&P 500 since World War II have occurred during a bear market. The markets crash 20%. That's the definition of a bear market before it gets back to a bull market, which means 20% positive from previous lows. Okay, 50% of the over 50% of the best returns in the S&P 500 happened during that time. And another 30% happened during the first 2 months of a bull market. So before you we can you could even look at a quarterly statement. Okay, your portfolio, the market's gonna it's gonna be gone. You can't catch up with it anymore. You can't chase the market. Once you've gotten off the train, you can't go back and chase it down. Okay, you're not that fast. You're not Usain Bolt. Okay. So resist the urge to chase yield. And this is this is contradictory to what every single talking head in the media is saying right now is look at treasuries, look at five percent treasuries, look at CDs, look at money market accounts. They're just looking for news stories, okay? Because they know people rely on their four hundred one ks for 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 retirement, and so if people are concerned about their four hundred one ks, they're going to talk about what's hot now, and that's not what you should be investing in. Never invest in what is hot today, okay? That is always going to get you in trouble, okay? You actually want to do the opposite. What's hot today? You may want to trim some of that. You may not want to get out completely, but you may want to trim some of what is hot today and buy. Things that don't look so hot today, but have opportunity for growth down the road. It's called buying low and selling high. Ever heard that concept before? Easier said than done. Unless you have a process. I like to call it the derp. You've probably heard me talk about this before. The disciplined, unemotional, repeatable process. Okay, so what's your process? What's your process for not only building your portfolio, but buying and selling decisions going forward? That is the most important question you can ask yourself during your retirement planning is what is my withdrawal strategy? People always talk about 4% rule or how much is, what is a safe way to withdraw from our portfolio? If you don't have the, the mechanism to withdraw money from the portfolio, it doesn't matter what percent you take out, you're going to fail or your, your, your probability of failing increases dramatically. Okay. So, so have a system in which you withdraw funds from your portfolio. Okay, so the 60-40 portfolio has been working just fine over the last three decades and longer. Okay, but what about the outlook going forward? Now we're in a situation where we have high interest rates, higher relative to the last 15 years. For those of you that bought houses in the 70s and 80s, you're going to send me emails saying, Kevin, my first interest rate was 20%. My first interest rate was 15%. Well, yeah, but if you compare that to the price of homes today, that's irrelevant because it was still very, very, very affordable to buy homes in the 70s and 80s. But I hear your point. Interest rates are still not above what they've been in the past, okay? But the feds are kind of saying, hey, 
we're going to be staying higher for longer. And we've already talked about the idea that that is going to stunt growth. It's going to ultimately impact earnings. Okay. Businesses, it's going to be tougher for them to get lines of credit. It's going to be tougher for them to borrow. It's going to be more expensive for them to borrow. Small and mid-sized businesses. And that's the backbone of the U.S. economy. Okay. So, so growth is going to slow down, which can have a trickle effect into earnings, of course. Okay. We're not going to see the earnings growth that we saw over the last 10 to 15 years. But probably a lot of that growth was because of historically low interest rates. That was too low for too long. And it was easy money policy. Companies could come in with literally no revenue, borrow a bunch of money, and just boom, the hit home runs, especially in the technology sector. Okay? And companies are still kind of riding the wave from the pandemic stimulus, believe it or not. But as those start to wane, as stimulus starts to wane, and the average spender is now squeezed because of inflationary pressures, okay, it's going to impact earnings. We may have slower growth. We may have lower muted returns in this next decade that we've seen in the last decade. Okay? Couple that with people are living longer. That means a longer retirement. It also means a higher potential need for long-term care expenses at the end of life. It also means potentially that adult children become more dependent of their aging parents or vice versa. The aging parents become dependent on their adult children. The question is, how do we modernize this 60-40 portfolio going forward? Let's say you haven't retired yet and you're approaching retirement or you just recently retired and you're wondering, hey, is this the right approach for me? I've seen all my friends and these people post online about the 60-40 portfolio. Is this right for me? Let me give you five strategies or concepts that you can use to potentially integrate into your retirement plan. And you can choose to use a combination of these. You can use one of these and tweak it to what is customizable for your situation. Do whatever you want with it. But here's some ideas for you. Number one, you can take on more risk. Listen, this might sound a little crazy, taking more risk as you approach retirement and then go through the beginning of retirement. But what do I mean by more risk? A larger percentage of exposure into equities, upwards of 75%. It may sound a little bit scary. And for those of you that are not super comfortable investing, maybe like, no, 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 this isn't for me. But let me, let me actually take you back to a study that we've referenced in the past. It's about safe withdrawal rates by Bill Bengen, the 4% rule, okay, where essentially he back-tested historical rates of return and figured out that, hey, if you start with a 4% rate of withdrawal year one, and then each year thereafter adjust that for inflation, there was never a period of time in history where you ran out of money before 30 years. Okay, So that's where this benchmark of 4% rule of the withdrawal rate came into play. But what most people don't realize about the study is there's a lot more to it. Okay, number one, the 4% rule assumes an allocation of 50% U.S. stocks and 50% U.S. treasuries. He later came back and said, hey, if you add other asset classes, for example, small cap, you could raise your safe withdrawal rate up to 4, 4.5% or even 4.7%. Okay, but what he also said was get as close as possible to 75% equities. Minimum exposure in equity should be 50%. In no scenario should you be below 50% in stocks going through retirement. Okay, This might be contrary to what a lot of people think. Have you ever heard the rule of thumb? Take 100 minus your age, and that's what percent you should have in stocks. So for example, if you're 60 years old and you take 100 minus 60, that's just saying you should have 40% of your portfolio in the stock market. Well, Bill Bengen, who actually back-tested the data, says that minimum you should have is 50%. Why is this? Well, inflation. 
Okay, if you want to plan for a 30-year retirement plus, and let's say you're retiring at 60, what if you lived until 90 or 95? Well, my wife's grandmother lived until 98. I mean, I don't know if she anticipated that, but I mean, thankfully she had a pension from her late husband. Okay, but a lot of you are not going to retire with the pension anymore. Okay, those are going by the wayside. So it's going to be investments, 401k, Roth accounts, traditional brokerage, HSAs. Okay, we need to make sure those keep with the pace with inflation and bonds just don't do that over a long period of time. Equities do. Equities outpace inflation. Real estate can outpace inflation as well if you buy in the right markets. Okay, but, but he said 50% should be the minimum in the stock market, ideally closer to 75%. If you can get to 75%, that gives you the optimal safe withdrawal rate, which was actually 5%. So instead of a 4% rule, just by increasing your equity exposure, you're now at 5%. And I say this being the first strategy is because inflation, okay? Let's say we have inflation that is a little stickier than what the Fed is wanting. Let's say they don't get back down to the 2% right away, okay? I mean, that's very, very possible. Inflation feels like it's kind of embedded in our society at this point. We're not going to go back to prices we saw back in 2020 or 2019. That's just not happening. Okay, the inflation rate is embedded in here. And so we need to make sure as a pre-retiree and a retiree that your buying power is sustainable for 30 plus years because of this longevity risk. If you don't have longevity in your family, if you have a terminal illness, that's a different story. You may consider being a little bit more conservative because you need the money sooner. You know, you might have long-term care. You might have a healthcare cost that is exponentially more than what you're actually bringing in with cash flow. So you may need a larger withdrawal. You may want to uh, pare down your, your portfolio to 50% in stocks or even lower. But for the majority of retirees, 50% should be the minimum and closer to 75% optimally for this new age of retirement planning, which is people retiring earlier, oftentimes is not even by choice. Okay, It's not like, hey, I'm going to, at 60, I'm just going to call it quits. No, no, no. It's because they're being phased out. Okay, how many buyout packages are we hearing about? You know, hey, we're going to buy out our senior executives and our senior employees. We're going to give you a year or two of your salary. Take the early retirement and walk because they know over the long run that's going to save the money. They're going to be able to hire someone that's younger and less expensive. Okay, this is happening more and more now. And so you can't just assume you're going to work to a normal retirement age, let's say 65 or 66 or 67. In my opinion, you should be, most people should be planning for 60 to have that financial freedom and that financial independence. Where if that did happen to you, you, you're good. You can retire. Okay. But if it doesn't happen to you, yeah, you could continue to work if you still wanted to. Okay. But, but I think the shift of thinking of staying more aggressive for longer, as long as we have that derp, that disciplined, unemotional, repeatable process for withdrawal rates, which maybe I'll talk about that on another show is what is derp. Okay. But that sustainable withdrawal process coupled with the 75-25 portfolio, boom, that's that's how you win in this modern portfolio theory. Number two, how about using a bucketing approach? What is a bucketing approach, you might say? Well, um, think of it like this. Let's say you have a goal of being 60% in the equity markets and 40% in fixed income because we've been talking about 60-40. Well, let's say you have three different accounts. Let's say you have a taxable brokerage account. You have a traditional IRA and you have a Roth IRA. And let's say they're pretty equal in terms of value, okay? Well, you may not want to have every single one of those accounts invested at 60-40. Why is this? Well, to keep it real simple, number one is time horizon in terms of the withdrawals on each portfolio, 
on each bucket in this scenario. And then number two is because of taxes. Okay, so let me explain what I mean by that. Well, the Roth account, the Roth IRA, many of you know this already, but Roth accounts have no required minimum distributions. Traditional accounts, 401ks, 403bs, IRAs, if it's a pre-tax or a tax-deferred traditional retirement plan, you're going to have required minimum distributions, which for those of you that had not started taking RMDs yet, it's going to be either 73 or 75. Okay, That's the age in which you start to take those distributions, regardless if you need the money or not. And that's a different story because I see this oftentimes where people, they run into this tsunami of taxes because of RMDs. And they don't really have a plan for this. And they wait until they're 72 and they say, hey, Kevin, I'm ta- I need to take RMDs next year. I need to come up with a game plan. <laughs> I mean, you're a little late for that. But here's the deal. You may have the Roth account because it's there's no there are no RMDs on it. You may have this one the most aggressive out of your all of your portfolio. Maybe this one's 100% in the stock market. You may say, well, that's a little crazy. Well, let me let me explain how you balance that out. Then you move on down the ladder and you say, hey, What about my traditional IRA? Hey, I'm going to start taking withdrawals here in the next year or two because I'm retired. Maybe this account is the opposite. Maybe this account is maybe 20 or 30% in equities and let's say 70 or 80% in fixed income. Why would you have fixed income in the IRA versus the brokerage account? I'll talk about that here in a second. But essentially the timing of the withdrawals from the Roth account versus the traditional account can impact how you choose different investments in those buckets. The strategy is also known as asset location. You may hear advisors talking about asset location instead of asset allocation. Okay, and then we move on down to the brokerage account. And this one is interesting because traditional retirement planning in terms of withdrawal strategies, people have always said, hey, start taking your taxable account first, your taxable brokerage account, then tap in your tax deferred, and then you're tax-free. So common theory would say, or the traditional retirement theories would say, hey, the taxable brokerage account should be the most conservative account because that's when you're going to rely on first. Then your traditional 401k or IRA could be in the middle. And then the Roth account could be the most aggressive. Here's the problem with that is your taxable brokerage account is taxable. Okay. So interest income that you earn on the taxable brokerage account is subject to taxes. And it's going to be added to your total adjusted gross income at the end of each year. And what that can do is that can creep you up into different tax brackets. So all of your income is taxed differently. Number two, it could subject you to Medicare surcharges, also known as IRMA. Everyone's worst enemy in retirement is IRMA. And then number three, it can make you pay a little bit more in taxes than you otherwise would have on your Social Security income. So you want to make sure you control what types of investments you own on that taxable brokerage account. So I like to own as little as possible on the fixed income side that we can get away with in the taxable brokerage account, especially for those high income earners or those earners that are on the borderline of different social security brackets or different Medicare surcharge brackets. So we want to suppress how much interest income we're earning on those taxable brokerage accounts. One way to do that is to not own very very much in the way of fixed income in those accounts. So you want to own those in the traditional IRA. Well, if the the taxable brokerage account is now more aggressive, we need to then balance that out with being a little bit more conservative with the traditional IRA and or Roth account. An example of how you might do this, let's say your target was 60-40, have your brokerage account aggressive, okay, mostly in equities, have your traditional retirement accounts a little bit more conservative, 
majority on fixed income. And then your Roth accounts could be skewed towards being a little bit more aggressive because no RMDs, but maybe not 100% in stocks. Maybe you have a percentage of a sleeve in fixed income there. Okay, if you're going to be drawing on that portfolio for income and retirement, if it's for legacy, that might be different. You might be 100% in equities in the Roth account because no RMBs and you're planning it to leave it to the kids. Who cares about volatility in the short term? But that's just an idea of, hey, we, we don't have to have every account invested the same way. In fact, that's not how you should be doing it anyways. Good financial planning would say time horizon is going to drive this. Going a step fur- further with the pro tip, okay, taxes and retirement are very important. All right, what about number three? to modernize the 60-40 portfolio. And this is one of my favorite strategies, using individual bonds, okay? This could be individual corporate bonds. It could be municipal bonds. It could be treasuries, okay? International bonds, I don't mess around with those, okay? High-yield bonds, I don't really mess around with those for individual bonds. I'll typically use funds for those allocations because you want to create a little bit more diversification with those because they're not investment-grade type of risk profiles. They're a little bit more risky, obviously, the other assets, those treasuries we talked about, which are issued by the U.S. government, okay? You have other um, state entities, local uh, government entities that issue bonds. Those are municipal bonds. And then you've got corporate bonds. A lot of these are super highly rated financial institutions. A lot of these are AAA rated, and they're issuing investment-grade bonds, paying pretty healthy coupons these days. But what I like about the individual bond strategy is you can control the maturity. You control the duration more. Okay, what does that even mean? All right, we just talked about a 2022. We had volatility in the fixed income market and prices were down significantly, upwards of 13 to 15% in the, in the bond market in 2022. What, happen, it, what happens is during volatility is you have people flight to safety. So if their investments are down significantly, counterintuitively, their mind is telling them, hey, I need to stop the bleeding. I'm going to get out of this and I'm going to park it in a CD or I'm going to park it in a money market account or I'm going to park it in a fixed annuity. So essentially what happens is they end up redeeming their bonds a little bit earlier or their stocks earlier. Okay. So with bond funds, exchange traded funds or mutual funds, you don't have that control. If other investments are redeeming their capital, the fund has to raise capital to pay those other investors because they can get their money back at any point in time. So you can't really control the duration like you can with an individual bond because an individual bond, you own that bond. You are the only owner of that bond and you can hold it to maturity. The benefit of holding it to maturity is you get the par value back. So regardless of all of this price volatility that we've seen in 2022 and into 2023, when your bond matures, it doesn't matter what the value was the day before. When your bond matures, you're going to get that par value back. You're going to recruit that initial investment for the most part. So why is this so important? Well, you don't have to worry about that redemption risk. If you say, yeah, you know, the prices of my bonds are down by 10 or 12%, but that's fine. I'm going to still hold it to 2024 because 2024 is the first year I need to start taking required minimum distributions. Or I'm going to hold this bond until 2026. That's the first year I need to start to take required minimum distributions. Okay. So you can better control cash flows and the pricing of those cash flows by using individual bonds. It could also be true for individual CDs as well, using CD ladders. Many of you have probably heard that concept. The same thing could be applied using individual bonds. And what I love about this strategy is we can match up things like required minimum distributions or uh, distributions for travel using individual bonds. We can, we can purchase a known cash flow that's going to pay in the future with a very high probability. If it's backed by the US government, hopefully, you know, it's pretty secure. 
and we can control that duration. So even though prices have been volatile over the last year and a half or two, when it matures, we'll get the par value back. For the core positions in the portfolio for many of our clients, we implemented individual bonds. Why is this? Because of the inverse relationship with interest rates and bond prices and the risk of redemptions that we've seen over the last year and a half with bond mutual funds and ETFs. I'm not saying ETFs and mutual funds are bad for bonds, but using individual bonds could help you control that interest rate risk that we just talked about. The downside, there are two of them, redemption risk, which leads to reinvestment risk. So if interest rates flatline or even go down, they could redeem the bond and they could reissue those bonds at lower interest rates. So a lot of bonds are callable. So you got to watch that. Is it callable or not callable or non-callable? And then the second con would be diversification. You know, for a smaller portfolio, it might be hard to create a diversified portfolio of individual bonds. Larger portfolio, I mean, if you have $100,000 worth of fixed income in, let's say, an IRA or 401k plan, you can create a pretty well diversified fixed income portfolio. All right. So a lot of you won't have that problem, but but diversification is definitely a factor. And using a bond mutual fund or ETF, you're going to have a lot more diversification using those funds. But if you're buying investment grade, high quality uh, fixed income instruments, hopefully you don't have to worry about those, those issuers essentially going bankrupt. Okay. Number four, look at the sub-asset classes within stocks and bonds. I'll give you an example. I see a lot of investors make the mistake of just for their large for their US equities, they just invest in an S&P 500 in index fund. Okay? Why do I say this is a mistake? Well, for a lot of people this is fine. If your 401k plan is pretty limited and you don't have a ton of options in there and for US equities, the only option is there is an S&P 500 index fund, invest in that, of course, right? But if you're invested in an IRA, you know that you can create as much diversification as you want or need in your portfolio, right? Because you have the entire universe of investments, not just the investments that are offered within your 401k plan, okay? So look within the sub-asset classes. Now watch this. The S&P 500 is a combination of growth stocks and value stocks. Growth stocks being stocks that are more growth-oriented, okay? Typically, these don't pay a lot of cash flows, but they're kind of in it for the long haul and just appreciating and growing as much as possible, and that's the attractiveness of growth stocks, okay? Whereas value stocks, typically these companies are lower in terms of prices. Their valuation has come down. They may pay some healthy cash flows. They may pay healthy dividends, and it makes an attractive investment because not only you can invest in these funds for the dividends, uh, the dividend payments, but you could also invest it for these funds potentially growing back to what the valuation should be on paper. Okay. And like I said, a lot of people just go S&P 500 one way, but if you divide that index into growth and, and value, look what happened in 2022. Your, your, fixed, your equities on, on the S&P 500, the growth positions, okay, the growth-oriented stocks in the S&P 500 were down about 33% in 2022. The value stocks in 2022 were actually pretty much flat after dividends. I mean, it was about minus 2% last year. Not bad relative to minus 33%. What has growth done in 2023 versus value? Well, growth is positive 30%. Value is minus 3%. Okay, so why is this even important? Well, when I am rebalancing portfolios, and when you should look at rebalancing portfolios, you want to be buying the losers and selling the winners. Not all of them. Okay, but positions, t- trim the gains, take them off the table and buy things that are undervalued or underperforming relative to the historical average. Well, look at this. At the beginning of 2023, we rebalanced the US equity portfolios. And how did we do that? 
We bought what was down, which was growth-oriented stocks, and we held or sold off what was essentially flat, which was the value side of the stocks. Okay, And now in 2023, we've reaped the rewards of that. Because we rebalanced and actually bought up some of those growth stocks, now a higher percentage of our portfolio is earning that positive 30%, and a lesser percentage is earning that minus 3% that value is provided. Same thing could be held, uh, held true with fixed income. Okay, Global fixed income versus US fixed income. I'm not going to get into all the mechanics there, but there is a strong argument to having global fixed income in a portfolio with what's going on today. All right, and last but not least, number five, how about just using bond alternatives altogether? Okay, so bonds have just gotten a bad rap. I mean, like I said, the average return on bonds over the last 10 years has been 1%, 1.1%, right? Interest rates, like we already talked about, historically low, but I mean, that's a terrible return. And and then you add on top of that, the, the sensitivity of prices. So the question is, I mean, listen, should you even own bonds if there are alternatives out there that provide similar results with less volatility? Well, what could those two be? Number one that comes to mind would be a MIGA, M-Y-G-A or a multi-year guaranteed annuity. Now, this isn't some pitch to buy annuities. You, as you know, if you know me, I don't sell insurance or annuities, okay? I'm a fee-only advisor without any bias to the product itself. What I'm saying is MIGAs, because interest rates have come up substantially, some of these fixed rate MIGAs, multi-year guarantees, you could find five, six, seven percent on these MIGAs. It also gives you the flexibility to turn into an income stream later on, okay, or annuitize either all or some of the portfolio, okay. And this could this could provide an even higher payout ratio. I've, I've seen some payout ratios on annuities upwards of eight percent now. And if you can lock in an eight percent fixed interest on a segment of your portfolio for the next thirty years during retirement, good on you. The, the primary con on these things are liquidity. If you need the money early you're probably going to have a pretty hefty surrender charge that's going to you're going to get hit with so you got to make sure that you have other liquidity elsewhere on your balance sheet so just in case you needed money in the short term you can avoid tapping your miga early all right but that would be the first bond alternative I would throw out there and then the second the second one I'll throw out there is cash value life insurance we've already talked about life insurance over the last few episodes and so I'm not going to get into a whole lot of the details. If you haven't listened to it, go back and listen to it. I think it was episodes 26 and 27. Just to keep things real simple, you know, listen, many of you are over the age of 65. It might be too late to use this as a bond alternative. You need you need seven to 10 years for this bucket to do what it's intended to do. And what it's intended to do, first and foremost, because it's life insurance, is to provide a guaranteed death benefit when you pass away, not if you pass away. Okay, so that should be the first reason you would buy permanent life insurance is because you have a need or want for permanent life insurance. But the cash value could be a nice bond alternative if you've got time to let this thing cook and compound. Let's say seven years or 10 years, and now you're in retirement, you've got 100 grand or $150,000 in cash value. That reduces, in my opinion, if it's positioned properly, the amount you need in bonds and your other investments. So let's say your 401k, instead of being 60-40, now it can be 80-20, right? Because you've got that life insurance cash value in place, you can now be more aggressive, eliminate some of the bonds in your portfolio, and then reap the rewards of of having a higher percentage of your portfolio in stocks during retirement. But if you're under the age of 65, let's say you're 45 to 55 range, 
you still have legitimate viable time to make this part of your strategy. Okay, you've got to be healthy. You've got to be able to uh, qualify for medical underwriting. But again, if you have a need or want for permanent life insurance, and then you structure a policy that is that is meaningful, okay, you can build up substantial cash value over the course of ten or fifteen years before you retire. And this could be an absolute home run when it comes to safe money in retirement. I promise you right now, my clients that have permanent life insurance in retirement, they sleep better at night knowing they have a guaranteed legacy in place so they can freely spend more money. And then number two, they know they have this asset class that's not going down if the market goes down. It just creates more opportunities. I mean, think about the power of this. In 2022, stocks were down 19%, bonds were down 13%. Do you know what my cash value did last year? It went up 5%. Cash value life insurance is immune to interest rate risk. Even interest rates, if they go up, the value of your cash value does not go backwards. Now, I'm not talking about index universal life. That's a totally different animal. I'm not a fan of index universal life insurance for most people. Um, If you're a scenario that you think it makes sense for you, reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you because I've reviewed plenty of index universal life policies And I just can't see it being a better alternative than a traditional overfunded traditional whole life policy. Okay, but that's the power of it. What if you needed a large withdrawal in 2022? You're retired. If the only option is bonds, you're selling bonds at a loss. Remember we we, we talked about the rule before of buying low and selling high. You don't want to sell low. Well, for those of you that had bonds that you needed to sell in 2022, you sold low. Okay, you sold when bonds were down by minus 13%. If you have the cash value life insurance or MICA, there's no principal risk. Okay, the, the principal is, is embedded into the policy. So regardless of what happens in the market, you have a guaranteed interest rate. Extremely powerful when it comes to planning for a 20, 30, or 40 year retirement. Well, that's it for today, everybody. Thank you for tuning into today's episode. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you found our show helpful. If you found the show to be helpful, I would love it if you left that five-star review. It helps us so much, and I appreciate all of you that have done so already. If you haven't done so, make sure to hit the follow button wherever you're consuming podcasts. This doesn't change anything for you. It doesn't cost you anything, but it helps us reach more people, and that is what we're all about. And also, you're notified when we release a new episode, which is every two weeks on Thursday. I've also enjoyed hearing from a lot of you, so feel free to drop me an email. Uh, which is random thoughts or questions or things that are on your mind or even topic requests for future episodes, just send me a note at kevin at imaginefinancialsecurity.com. And finally, if you're interested in learning more about how to work with me one-on-one, visit my website, imaginefinancialsecurity.com. You can actually schedule a meeting directly on my calendar. Um, Or you can just send me an email directly, kevin at imaginefinancialsecurity.com. And just put in the uh, in the subject line, working together. Until next time, this is Kevin Lau signing off.